Hey, just quick show of hands. Anybody in here ever start something but did not have the ability to finish it? Any, some, some of you, yeah, some of you are like, I've started to raise my hand, but I can't finish that either. No, I'll put it, put it back down. The reason I ask is because about six weeks ago, we started a series called Adulting, where we were learning how to grow up, not just grow old. And anytime you do a series like that, where there's some just tangible, practical things that can arguably help you grow up spiritually in your life, anytime you do a series like that, what tends to happen is it's pretty easy to start making some decisions decisions to change, but it's rather hard to keep them. In other words, it's hard to finish. Like, yeah, I'm going to start doing what you said I'm going to do, but then we can't follow it through. Matter of fact, it's at about this time of year that roughly 90% of you will have given up on your New Year's resolutions. Won't make you raise your hand on if you've done that already or not, but uh, over 90% of people uh, won't complete the resolution that they start the year on. So here's what I want us to do over these next two weeks together. What I want us to do is learn how to keep the change. Now, in all transparency, we did a series two years ago called Keep the Change. And so uh, this is really Keep the Change part two. But what I didn't tell you then that I need you to know now is there's a scientific law at work. It's a universal law. It applies to everybody's lives. And it's called the Law of Diminishing Returns. In its simplest form, the law of diminishing returns means more effort yields less results. Now, that's the opposite of how most of us think life should work. If we put in more effort, we should see more results. We should see a greater than, or at least at minimum, unequal to return, depending on what it is that we're doing. But in many cases, the energy that you put in often does not yield the return that you would like. And uh, I'll give you an example. If you went through the effort of learning how to run efficiently and you increased your speed from three miles per hour to four miles per hour, your time for a mile would change from 20 minutes per mile all the way down to 15 minutes per mile. That's massive progress. And all you've done is go one mile per hour faster and you cut five minutes off your mile time. If, however, you really get after it and you put in the hours of strength training and muscle stretching and nutrition monitoring and you improve from nine miles per hour to 10 miles per hour, you don't cut five minutes off your time. You cut 40 seconds off your time. Your rate of improvement drops by more than 80%. So tons of input and not much return. To that point, roll this law of diminishing returns out into your spiritual life. Maybe you started the year by fasting and praying, and you really saw God show up and and answer some of the things that you were praying for. Or maybe you started giving for the very first time, or maybe you gave more than you did last year, and you really have exactly the same quality of life that you had before you started giving. Or maybe you got into a group, and you met some just fantastic friends, and you're really excited about these new people that God has put into your life. Or maybe you started serving for the first time, and you feel like you're really making a difference because you are, uh, but at some point, those things are, are, are gains they're, they're, that you thought were big, that you're going to look at them and you're going to think to yourself, well, things are not going well. 
things have started to dwindle and you're going to point to the shrinking levels of success as evidence. But that's not evidence. Those are your feelings. And you shouldn't trust your feelings. You should look at the data. And the data says you added a whole seven miles per hour to your speed. See, most people give up because they don't review their progress the right way. Or more often than not, they have no system to review their progress at all. So they say, what's the point? I'm doing all this work, and all I get is this lousy t-shirt. You know, like, what is the point of doing all this? Forget it. And the lie that we're all prone to believe is if it's not perfect, and it's not immediate, and if it doesn't match my satisfaction, then it's not worth it. But what if the data says and proves that it is worth it? Like, what if the incredible effort and minimal returns is exactly what God has called you to? See, there's another universal principle at work. It's called the law of compounding interest. And small returns over time. A little here, a little here, a little here. Suddenly that's a snowball. And the law of compounding interest says you're going to get extraordinary dividends if you just give it long enough. So here's the question that I want us to answer this morning. How do we finish what we were excited to start when the returns are no longer enough to motivate us? To say it another way, how do we gut it out in the grind and keep the change? It's convenient because the title of my message this morning, Gutting Out the Grind, part one of Keep the Change. If you brought a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Meet me in Nehemiah chapter 1. If you have to look at the table of contents in the front of your Bible to find Nehemiah, no problem. You're you're in good company. It's about a quarter of the way in. Uh, There's going to be some Chronicles and some Kings and then Ezra, Nehemiah. If you're an Esther or Job, you've gone too far. We're going to kind of skim over a few parts of the book of Nehemiah. I'm in the New International Version this morning. It says, In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year... While I was in the citadel of Susa, that's the capital city, Han and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the providence are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire." When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Okay, now we know from history that this event is taking place uh, mid-November to mid-December, roughly 444 B.C. Hebrew month of Kislev, we know mid-November to mid-December and 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign, 444 B.C. Now, we also know that roughly 150 years before this took place, King Nebuchadnezzar invaded Jerusalem, a Babylonian king, and he took the Jews that were living in the city captive. He broke down the walls, burned the city with fire. He took a whole group of people hundreds of miles away. We also know a short time later that the Persians end up defeating the Babylonians. A guy named Cyrus allows this group of Jews to go back to Jerusalem. And then this King Artaxerxes sends a guy named Ezra to start rebuilding the city. We also know it's not going well because we just read there's great trouble and disgrace. Now the reason you should be aware of that 
particularly when it comes to gutting out the grind, is because the grind is going to start out like any other day. In the month of Kislev, start out like any other day. And if you're writing a, no- a novel, you very first sentence, it started out like any other day. And isn't that just like God? To start, show up when things start out just like any other day when you least expect it. When Moses went out to care for his sheep, it started out like any other day until it wasn't. When David went to deliver food to his brothers on the front lines of a battle they were having with the Philistines, it started out like any other day until a giant started running his mouth. When, when Peter, Andrew, James, and John were out on the boat mending their nets, it started out like any other day until the Savior of the world walked by. And Jesus says, come follow me. See, when you're in the grind, it's hard to recognize ordinary days as potentially extraordinary days. But when you bring Jesus into the equation, any day can be an amazing day. So write this down. When it comes to the grind, what's next will always look more interesting than what's now. When you're in the grind of it all, that thing out there, what's next, it's always going to look more interesting than what's now. And to be fair, you already know that's true. It's why every time you sit down to start reading your Bible and you've got the Bible plan out, you start thinking to yourself, oh, I better go clean the garage. And you're like, well, after seeing all that stuff, you're like, I better have a garage sale. And then you're like, I oh, you have the garage sale. You're like, I need to buy some stuff to fill up this garage. It's all empty again. You know, when you give a dog a donut, it's going to want some apple juice. And anybody else have kids? You got to get the treat, you know, the apple from the tree and all that. Uh, the secret to figuring out how does this grind lead me to recognize what's now? Because what's now will ultimately take you to what's next. You tracking with that? Finish what's now, then go on to what's next. Because listen, the whole point of the grind is to get you distracted. And like I said, if you're looking at what's next, it's going to distract you from what's now. In the previous examples, imagine if Moses would have been just focused on the next thing, getting them sheep out to the pasture so busy, he didn't take time to notice the burning bush. How many of us would have walked by that bush because we're too busy scrolling and texting and fiddling with Pandora and I need to get the one that doesn't have the commercials because I can't skip the commercials after a while. And somebody really should have put that fire out is what we would have thought. Like this thing is going to start a forest fire. Imagine if David would have been so distracted and trying to get that food to his brothers on the front lines and he's just like, man, I got to get to the next delivery. Uber Eats has got me mega busy. Nobody's like willing to go through a drive through anymore, God forbid. Get the Taco Bell delivered right to the house. And so he's got to go on to the next thing. Never takes time to, you know, finish off the giant. Imagine if Peter, Andrew, James, and John were so busy mending their nets, and they didn't want to listen to Jesus tell them to go out to the back to where they were, cast nets on the other side. Like, thanks, Jesus, we were out here all night. Don't know how many fishermen you met tend to be a little superstitious. It's like on the next cast, if I hit it just right, the next one's going to be the one. They can never stop. It's always on the next one. What's next will always look more interesting than what's now. Which, to be clear, in each one of those Bible stories, it was a distraction that led our characters to recognize what was now, right? So a distraction from a distraction might exactly be what God is using to get your attention. 
And Nehemiah's brother distracted him from his duties serving the king, and history was changed. Same thing is true of Moses and David and the disciples. And you. What you do with your distraction, that's what's important. See, there are these distractions. They're called red herrings. And they're meant to get you off course. They are things irrelevant to your current mission that are meant to take you away. And red herrings are exactly what your enemy, the devil, wants to put into your life. It's kind of interesting because uh, anti-fox hunting activists, they used to use this fish that had a potent spell, uh, smell called a herring, and it was meant to distract the uh, lure the hounds away from the hunting route. So they said if you would take a, re- a red herring and run it across the path, instead of chasing the fox, the hounds would go after the fish. Same thing happens to you. The closer you get to finishing, the more interesting everything else in your life becomes. It's why, on the average, each college student is going to change their major three times. Because this over here is more interesting than the thing that I'm currently in. And it looks better. It's why the Bureau of Labor Statistics in the United States says the average American will change jobs 12 times in their lifetime. Now, that's somewhat misleading because you're going to change your job six times from the time you're 16 until you're 24, which you can't count any of those jobs, right? I mean, mowing lawns and all that, like nobody wants to do that forever. But uh, the time you're 24 to 44, you're going to change your job four times. And from 44 to the time you retire, you're going to change it another two times. Because this over here seems more interesting and this is going to pay me more money and nobody is ever willing to admit that greater levels mean bigger devils. But this is the why we need to recognize, is this a good distraction or is this a bad distraction? Back to Nehemiah, what did he do? Verse 4, he prayed and fasted. He sought the Lord. Well, of course, you're going to say that, Pastor. What an unhelpful church answer. If we just pray and fast, then we're going to have it. No, no, no. no. I mean, this is not the only thing that uh, Nehemiah did. And I, like you, have prayed and fasted. And I, like you, ain't heard nothing back. And so we got to do a little bit something besides that. But let's not rush past that right away. Uh, He prayed and fasted, but how long did he pray and fast? That's worth pointing out. Look at the very first sentence in chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year, he says, that's spring. Uh, We know roughly April is the month of Nisan, so how long is that? December, January, February, March, April. Five months, Nehemiah sought the Lord, prayed and and fasted half of a year he was asking God what is it that I need to do I don't know about you but I've never prayed and fasted for that long I couldn't think of a single example of something I prayed for over and over and over again for six months but it would appear as though in that initial stage of gutting out the grind and recognizing the law of diminishing returns for what it actually is first thing that we got to do is seek God faithfully Seek God faithfully. He continues, Nehemiah, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, what's wrong with your face, bro? This can be nothing but sad. That's paraphrased slightly. Uh, This can be nothing but sadness of heart. 
I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. You starting to see a pattern in Nehemiah's life? In my experience, the reason most people don't seek God faithfully has nothing to do with their ability to pray. It has to do with the fact that they've already got their answer and they don't like it. It's a lot easier to say, well, I've prayed about this and God hasn't answered me. It's a lot easier to say, well, I must take this silence as God's yes. God didn't tell me no, so it must mean he's going to say yes. It must mean I am supposed to take this job and get out of my sphere of influence. I'm supposed to leave this church where God has put some people in my life that can speak into my life. And I'm supposed to get away from all these people that could actually help me in my support group. And I'm supposed to get into debt. And God must mean I should buy the car. God didn't tell me I can't buy the car. So his silence must be the answer of yes. Just for the record, this is the same line of reasoning used shortly before God sent a whale to swallow him up. If you don't know the story, Jonah is supposed to go to the city of Nineveh, but he manages to go to a shipyard where there's no online schedule, and he can't purchase the tickets in advance, and he shows up, and there just happens to be a boat sailing in the opposite direction. What are the odds that I show up on this day and there's this boat and they're willing to take this stowaway on board? It just happens to be going the other way. Man, this must be God giving me an answer. He must have changed his mind. And we say the same thing. Man, this, this must be God. My boyfriend happens to be living in the same town. We should be moving in together. How much money could we save? God wants us out of debt, right? So we could pay the student loans off. We could start tithing with all this money that we're going to save. And I got this bonus. And maybe I need to go buy this house because God must be doing this. This is all part of God's plan to benefit me. No, see, when we see God faithfully, we'll be deeply moved for other people. Text doesn't say Nehemiah just prayed and fasted. It said that he sat down and mourned over the people in Jerusalem. He wept. He was bothered. He was disturbed. He was provoked from in his spirit. There was something wrong in his soul and it had nothing to do with him and yet everything to do with him. Let me ask you, what bothers you? What disrupts you? What's that one thing in your life? If it got better, it would change everything else in your life. Doesn't have to be super spiritual, by the way. What was Nehemiah's one thing? Rebuilding the city. Verse 5, want to go... Uh, answered the king, I want to go rebuild this city. That's the thing that's happening within my spirit. I would argue city planning isn't that spiritual, but maybe there's a proverbial city in your life that needs rebuilt. Maybe there's some walls that have been torn down in your life that God is asking you to rebuild. It's why if you're going to finish and if you're going to gut out the grind, you need to define your vision clearly. Define your vision clearly. To help you with that, you should answer King Artaxerxes' question. What do you want to do? 
Because if you start with seeking God faithfully, you'll get a clear sense of direction from God. What is God calling you to do? Some of you are going to say, God's calling me to help children. Okay, what children? Children that need to learn how to read? Children that don't have their basic needs met? Those who have been abused? Those who don't have houses? Which children? Children in Park City? Children in the city you're from? Children in Kansas? Children in the United States? What is it very specifically that God is calling you to do? The bottom line is if you can't define it, you can't do it. That was really good. Nobody said anything. Uh, If you can't define it, you can't do it. Don't use God not speaking as a cop-out. If God is calling you to do it, He's going to give you the ability to define it clearly in your life. And when the king asked Nehemiah what it is he wanted to do, he had an answer very clearly. For you, in one sentence, what is God calling you to do? In one sentence, be very clear, be very precise. What is it that God is calling you to do? You might say, God is leading me to lead my family to get out of debt by 2022. That's clearly defined. Now you have an ability to start working on something and make it doable because you've defined it in your life. With the exception of my mortgage, I want to be debt-free by 2022. You might say, God is leading me to have a personal conversation about Jesus with every student in my class. That's definable. Now you can start doing it. When? Before they graduate. There you go. What is it God is calling you to do? God is calling me to help eradicate human trafficking. God is calling me to help eradicate the sin of pornography and every young male in my sphere of influence in their life. God is calling me to equip mothers and end abortion. God is calling me to help people end addiction. In a crystal clear sentence, what is God calling you to do? Once you've defined it clearly, number three, you've got to make plans carefully. You want to gut it out in the grind? Some careful plans. Because the problem is, a goal without a plan is just a wish. A lot of people in this room just wishing. Just wishing things would get better. Just wishing I could figure it all out. No, make a plan. Honor God. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is get organized. You do realize God is a systematic God, right? We live in a solar system. The moon orbits the earth. The earth orbits the sun 24 hours in a day, seven days a week. You know, it's not like some weeks we get eight days, some weeks we get six days. There's 375 days a year on some years and 300. Now, in fairness, there's only 365.24, so you get that leap year. But even then, it's a system. It's every four years. God is a God of order. We need to have some order, too. Look at how specific Nehemiah is about his plans. Verse 6, it says, Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long is your journey going to take? When are you going to get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have some letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates where I'm traveling, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence that I'm going to occupy. 
Notice when the king says, what do you want to do? He doesn't say, I don't know. I'm just burdened by the fact that these walls were torn down. Don't have a clue about what it is I'm going to do. Don't know how I'm going to get it rebuilt. I just need to, I just know that something's got to happen. No, he wasn't just fasting and praying. He was also planning for five months. He was trying to get this thing defined clearly. And see, God might have to orchestrate other people's response, but God shouldn't have to orchestrate yours. Come on, somebody. You control what you can control. Allow God to control the people in the parts that are going to have to, you're going to have to get their help. God can take care of that. You do you. Nehemiah does what he needs to do. He makes a plan and then he asks for help. He says, I'm going to need some protection in this trans-Euphrates. You get the governors to protect me. I'm also going to need some provisions. I need some wood to rebuild all this. So tell the rancher Asaph that I'm going to need some trees out of the royal forest. And then he says, because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. It was because the God said, made the king say yes. This is where most people fall short, by the way, defining the plan clearly. Most people know exactly what it is they want, so they can set the goal pretty easily. They know exactly what it is they're supposed to do. Again, the problem is in the grind of getting it done. If you don't have a clear plan, for when the grind comes to happen, then of course you're not going to be able to do it. Of course that's not. If you haven't come up with a plan, then you haven't thought through it long enough. You shouldn't start out. You should set that plan further. In fact, I would argue success is not achieving some accomplishment way out there in the future. Success is being faithful to the things that you're supposed to do today. Be clear about today. What's the now? What's my next step now? What's my plan? Execute it. Then figure out what the next right thing is for you to do. You want to start a ministry? Do the next right thing. You want to learn how to uh, start a business? Go take an online class. Find a mentor. Write a business plan. Listen to a podcast. What do you want in life? Find somebody to do it. I want a date, Pastor. It's just Valentine's Day. I ain't got a date. God sent me here to help you, men, okay? Number one, take a shower. Clean yourself up. Like, shave your face a little bit. Number two, get a shirt with a collar. Dress yourself up a little bit. Sell your PS4, okay? That's step number two. Number three, go to Target. Target is where girls go to find things they don't need like you specifically in this case, okay? And so when y'all two get married and you have a kid, name him Largit because Landon sent you to Target. Come on, somebody. Like, that's ridiculous. That's a horrible name. Uh, Here's where we're at. You seek God faithfully. You define your vision clearly. You make your plans carefully. Fourth, you inspire people passionately. Inspire people passionately. Look at what Nehemiah does. Verse 17. He's in the city of Jerusalem. He's ready to rebuild. He gathers the people together. He says, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I told him about the gracious hand of my God on me and what he did to the king and what the king said to me. And they replied, let's get to rebuilding. 
And they started the good work. Believe me when I tell you, when you get in the grind, you're going to need some people to come alongside you and encourage you. And you need to inspire them passionately on the front end and tell them, you got to help me remember that God is for us. He's not against us. He's working all things together for good, for those who are called to his purpose. And he is for us and he will never leave us. And he's empowering us and he's going to go before us. And he's opening the doors that we don't have the power to open. And in his timing, this door is going to open and he's giving us favor in the hearts of people. John Wesley said, light yourself on fire with passion and people will come from miles to watch you burn. What are you passionate about? Inspire people to come alongside of you. If you would have told me seven years ago when there's about 35 of us gathered in the basement of the Park City Library with nothing but a vision in our heart to create a church that connects people to God's purpose because we believe that every person matters to God and we knew that Park City didn't need another church. They needed a different kind of church. And if you would have told me seven years ago that this church is going to have multiple services and we're going to have cumulative gifts across these seven years nearly two million dollars and every Sunday it requires a hundred and thirty seven man hours just to set up everything that you see set up and if you would have told me that across this time by the time 2019 was completed we would have accumulated and charted 1139 volunteer hours of you all doing stuff that's 48 days of you all getting together and saying, no, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. We're going to do something about this. And with your faith and with your heart and with your generosity and with the power of God, I believe God wants there to be more than two services. And God wants there to be more than one location because there are people out there that are hurting. You want to clap for something? You can clap for that because God wants to do something in the people's lives around us. This isn't enough. Not because we're interested in numbers or we're interested in church buildings or any of that stuff. We're interested in people. And we're about getting people into heaven, filling it with people who know the grace of God, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're about getting broken people into the presence of God because he's the only one that has anything to do with changing our life. You know, every number has a name, every name has a story, every story matters to God. And that's what we're passionate about, helping you write your story. That's what I believe is possible. What do you believe is possible? Do you know someone who needs Jesus? You need to invite them to coffee. Invite them to have a conversation. Some of you, that's intimidating. So invite them here. I promise you that we'll do everything in our power to make sure it's not weird for them and you're going to let some of these other crazy people just love them and care for them and show them the unconditional love of Jesus who changed all of us. This isn't just a church. This is a spiritual hospital. And every week we're going to try and inspire people passionately to live for Jesus and change their life. So let me kind of wrap everything up like this. What burdens you? What bothers you? What area of life do you need to make a difference? I believe God put that in your heart to make a difference. And if you'll 
seek God faithfully, and you'll clearly define that plan and make those plans very carefully, and you inspire people around you to get involved with God's help, I believe you'll empty foster homes. I believe that you can set people free from addictions. I believe that you can save marriages from divorce. I believe you can help young people not be burdened with some of these things that young people are having to deal with in their lives. And you can help them from misusing the gift of sex. And you can help heal all those people who have been hurt by it. You say, I'm just an ordinary person, Pastor. I don't feel qualified to do any of this. I don't feel prepared. Congratulations! You're exactly the type of person God likes to use. You think I feel qualified to stand up here every single week and preach to you? I assure you, I do not. And if you knew, knew the, some of the things uh, 10 years ago, you would never come to this church. But because of God, because of the power of Jesus working in my life, God is, wants to do the same thing. I'm no more spiritual than any one of you. My job's a little more public, and I get that. But you have a part to play in the story that God is trying to write as well. Do your part. What is God leading you to do? What's in front of you? Don't trust your feelings. Look at the data. Stop wasting time. You can do this. To that end, God, we're asking you to do what only you can do. Fill this place with your spirit. Speak to hearts. Speak to lives. What are you calling us to do? What's in front of us right now? What are you wanting us to finish? Whose life are we needing to speak into? The thing that we're most passionate about in this place is understanding, helping you understand that Jesus is the answer. That his whole, Jesus' Holy Spirit can literally take up residence in your life and change you from the inside out. That you can't do those things on your own power. We're passionate about helping you understand that you don't have to live a perfect life. Jesus did that for you. And he died on a cross to take your punishment so you didn't have to. And before we dismiss today, I want to give every person in this room the opportunity to say yes to that prompting that's in your life. If you haven't, the Bible makes it clear that all you have to do is confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, and you'll be saved. So I want to give you a chance just to confess with your mouth. You can pray this in your heart. You can say, God, I believe in your son, Jesus that he died on a cross, that he rose from the dead. And because of that, I'm made new. God, send your spirit into my life. Help me make the necessary, necessary changes that I need to. Help me develop this plan. Put vision in my heart. God, thank you that this has nothing to do with us because on our own power, we're not enough. This has everything to do with Jesus. Again, we're pleading with you to send your Holy Spirit in a powerful way. It's only through his strength 
that we can make it through. Encourage us, strengthen us, help each person leave here today one step closer to your son, Jesus. And it's in his beautiful name that we pray. Amen.